Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everybody. Um, Welcome to the Skylight Podcast. My name is Agnes. I work at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Um, We are a independent bookstore, been going on 25, 26 years in the Los Feliz neighborhood. And um, we're open these days. You can come by and visit us. Uh, We're open 10 to 7 during the week, 10 to 8 on the weekends. Um, We're doing online orders. Our arts annex recently opened, which is exciting. Um, And that said, one of the treats of the recent months has been being able to do these these conversations on our podcast and um i'm so excited to have with us today emily schultz um her novel um little threats comes out next next week on the 10th of november two weeks from now yes uh and uh so it's a great treat to have her here um emily schultz is the co-founder of joyland magazine her first novel the blondes was named a best book of 2015 by npr kirkus and book page and earned high-profile fans, including Stephen King and Margaret Atwood. Little Threats, her highly anticipated follow-up, once again puts Schultz's striking talent on display, this time with a taut and haunting psychological thriller that casts a sharp eye on the timely topics of sexuality, female friendships, violence, and the media. Her writing has appeared in Elle, Slate, Evergreen Review, Vice, Today's Parent, Hazlitt, and Prairie Schooner. She lives in Brooklyn, where she is a producer with the indie media company Heroic Collective. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Agnes. Um, well, let's just dive right in. Are you up for reading a little bit of the book? Sure. I'm, uh, if it's okay with you, I'm going to read from the first chapter. Perfect. Take us away. Okay. Jerry Wynn had chosen his daughter's names after presidents so that they would know anything was possible. If they'd been boys, they would have been Jack and Jimmy, or more formally, John and James. But 31 years ago, they had been handed to him screaming, pink and female. The afternoon before his daughter's release from prison, Jerry finished preparing things for Kennedy's arrival. He walked out to his SUV and placed her old army jacket in the front seat so she would have something to wear when she came out of the Heron Valley Correctional Facility. He had commissioned Carter to arrange for a new wardrobe for her, but she had forgotten to buy her sister a coat. Already blouses, pants, belts, and boots were stashed in an upstairs bedroom, and it was Carter's job to bring the cake to the party, although she hadn't said yet whether she would come with him to the prison to fetch her twin. Jerry thought that strange. Carter had dutifully visited her sister every week throughout her sentence, but had stopped as the release date came closer. He had never understood daughters, much less twins. After he finished making up the room, he would call Carter, he thought, try again to convince her what a momentous occasion this was. With the exception of their mother, Lane, the family was going to be together again. He was excited to show Kennedy the renovated house. Hers was the only room he hadn't redone. 
He stood in the doorway often, but didn't cross into the space as if it were still hers. Now it would be. As he went in, he discovered the bedroom had gathered dust. He remembered changing the sheets before her first parole hearing five years ago. She should have been let out then, given that the evidence in the case had been purely circumstantial. No weapon, no blood anywhere in the wind house. Only that goddamn lock of hair forced her into a plea. The Kimbersons had protested the release at a press conference that time, trotting out their living child, a boy. Everett was hardly old enough to shave them, let alone read a victim impact statement about what it had been like to lose his big sister when he was just nine. Distasteful, Jerry thought, to use a child that way. Kennedy had been denied that time. This time they hadn't shown, and Kennedy had been given the release date of November 7th, 2008. Jerry gripped the new set of sheets against his leg. He stared at the contents of the shelves, books, perfume bottles and banners, ribbons she'd won, tennis trophies. Kennedy and Carter had played doubles until they were 14. On the tennis court, they'd moved like music. His favorite memories of Kennedy involved driving long distance to sporting events. She and Carter were 12, then 13, that little window of time before he would lose them. Even then he'd known they would go. It was just that he thought it would be to school dances and sleepover parties. Jerry walked over and opened the window, hoping to get some air into the room. The floor around the end of the bed was still strewn with old tapes, titled, personalized, and annotated with a story known only between the gifter and the giftee. He kneeled down and looked at them. One was from Burke Butler. Until Haley's death, he hadn't even known his daughters and their friend had been involved with him. Jerry had to admit to himself how distracted he'd been that summer, with he and Lane working through things. The hand lettering on the tape case from Kennedy to Berkeley was loopy and doughy, the O's and A's almost square instead of round. The one from the young man to her had thin, tight lettering, as if he had forced himself to print neatly, pressing hard with black pen. It didn't occur to Jerry that the fact there were two tapes was an upset to the usual order, that Burke Butler still should have been in possession of the one she'd gifted him, that either she'd changed her mind about giving it or he'd given it back. The song names held nothing for Jerry. They brought no winding ribbon of melody to his mind. For him, it was all teenage code. He placed the tapes gently back on the floor beside a milk crate that housed other homemade Maxells. A woman from the cleaning service was the only other person who had been in Kennedy's room. But years ago, after Jerry had found some of the jewelry boxes and notebooks moved, the curling iron and the lava lamp all shifted around, he had switched services. Everything has its spot, he'd told her repeatedly. He told the new one not to bother going into the room at all. Now Jerry tentatively unmade the corners of the old bedding, working around the half-spilled crates of tapes and crammed racks of CDs. A button stabbed into Kennedy's corkboard read, Hope Not Fear, Clinton Gore 92. Earlier that day, he'd been sure to take down the Obama-Biden sign, one of the only two in their neighborhood, before he got a letter from the Homeowners Association about the election being over. The duvet was dark violet with a spray of lilac pattern across it. Everything had been purple that year, even Kennedy's hair. Lane and Jerry had hated the girls' style choices at the time, each new one cutting more, the short bell-shaped dresses, the clunky mannish boots, the distressed clothes from charity stores. What were they rebelling so hard against? He couldn't believe it when he started seeing Salvation Army on the credit card bill. He took it as a slight against all that he'd worked for. Jerry lifted up the duvet and smelled it. It didn't smell like Kennedy. The scent was musty like old cigarettes, though he had quit and no one had smoked in the house in at least a decade. He still had time to clean it. Jerry stripped the bedding quickly, 
years since he'd made a bed himself. How was this to be done? He stepped on a cassette case on the floor and felt it crack. Public enemy, fear of a black planet, the cassette read when he picked it up. He set it on the bookshelf. He tugged the new mauve sheet over the mattress. After years on a prison cot, the person deserved a well-made bed. Thank you, that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, so how, can you tell us a little bit what the book came from? What was the seed of this book in particular? Well, the seed was a lot of seeds, actually. I mean, I wanted to write about the 90s and I wanted to write about twins. I mean, I, I came of age in the 90s. I'm about the same age as the, the characters. And um, I have brothers who are twins. And so in this case, I wrote girls, <laughs> girl twins, but I have a lot of familiarity with um, just that relationship growing up around it of, you know, two people who are very similar, but also different from one another. Um, I think I got the idea of, well, I mean, I would say that I've always been sort of interested in violence in women, as, as you might guess from the blondes. Um, and so I did want to look at that because violent crimes are, are less common among women. So to have a character like Kennedy, who's gone away to prison for a murder was really interesting to me. And I've always been really interested in teenage dynamics. There's that bit in the, the part that I read about teenage code. Um, and what's happening too is now we're getting so far away from the 90s that I really wanted to look back and try to make sense of what that decade meant and what that era meant. Um, so in some ways, I'm like my characters. They're looking back at a crime and trying to sort it out. And I'm looking back at a time and trying to sort it out. Which is the way this kind of story is so cool that the, the, both the writer and the reader become like the person who's trying to understand the same, the same way the characters are trying to understand something, the writer and the reader are both working to understand something. It's a very, like, it's an exciting thing. Um, how, can you talk a little bit about how writing this was different from writing the blondes or similar to writing the blondes? Uh, well, okay. Um... It was, it was similar in that when I really get into an idea, I tend to just go with it and I write really hard every day, all day. Um, and so both books came very quickly. Um, but then of course they take a lot more editing and rewriting when they come so quickly. Like the blondes I wrote in about three weeks in the Mojave Desert, I got a cabin and I was just out there and that's all I did. Hmm. Um, and then I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. Right. And with this one, it didn't come quite that quickly, but it did feel like it came in a big spurt. And for me, what happened was once I find the personal material in a novel, I really can just give myself to it. So in this case, when I decided that the girls were going to have this older boyfriend who's in their, he's in their, he's in his twenties and they're teenagers, then the material came really quickly for me because that was true to my experience. And I think we were all getting to a point where we're looking back and saying that these dynamics are really loaded, you know what I mean? In terms yeah. of when, when you have an age difference, you know, is it abuse? Is it not? Is it predatory? And so once I started tapping into that, I, I knew how to write the novel. I knew who the characters were. That's so, I mean, I, it's so, it's always exciting to me to know that there's a root in something personal with books, not just because of some salacious biographical curiosity, but because of, because I think that's where really amazing writing comes from, from writing that, that is really diving into the mystery of and, and complexity of our, our lives. Can you talk, I mean, are there other, so we know there's a lot of personal seeds in this. Are there others, other sort of inspiration that you look to along the way? Other art, other, <laughs> other ideas, other um, uh, experiences? Well, I mean, I was watching a lot of Investigation Discovery for some reason. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, uh, and I think that was part of what led me towards this genre and to really exploring the idea of a crime between girls. I remember I was watching this one particular show and I immediately knew 
that girls had committed the crime. And my partner, who's male, who's, uh, you know, cis male, did not know that. And when I called it and I was right at the end of the show, he was like, how did you know? And I was like, I just knew, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As a, I just know. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of, I guess there was, there was that dynamic as well um, to this. But um, I, I think that, um, you know, it's hard to look at violence. And I look at violence a little bit in the blondes as well in terms of, you know, it's about uh, a rabies-like illness that makes women rage out. And I think with crime, what interests me is um, what is that moment that pushes someone uh, to do something that they might not ordinarily or to, be, to become a violent person? Like I have Kennedy, who is the character that's gone away to prison. And at one point, her sister Carter asks her directly whether she committed the crime. And she says, I'm not a violent person. Hmm. You know, she doesn't answer the question, but she says, I'm not a violent person. And um, I, I think for me, you know, it is sort of that personal relationship that comes in that makes it interesting as you're writing. Um, otherwise, you're just trying to chart plot points. And so it's interesting that you say you, you can feel it when an author has like a personal relationship to the content. I mean, well, now I want to ask more too about what it means to, to write about violence, whether it's in the Blondes or in this book, like how, how, have, how has that, how is writing about that um, shifted your sense of the world or how has it sort of resonated in your own life to be, to be thinking so deeply about those themes? Um, well, I mean, I think that we're thinking about it all the time. Um, you know, especially if you're, if you're reading and watching the news every single day, right. it's very violent, you know, especially yeah. right now. Um, and, and it can almost be overloading, you know? And so I think that looking at violence within a fictional story gives us that sort of emotional space to process um, all of the things that we see on a daily basis that are real because we don't, we don't have to have the same reaction to a story as we do to a real event. And I think it's like that for me too, when I'm writing it, it's a way to process um, my fear, right? It's a way to process fear. It's a way to process anger um, and, and to allow the characters to feel all those things. Yeah. I mean, undigested fear and anger, sort of the the juice on which the political mess we're in runs, you know, that, and so digesting those things is really an important. Yeah, I mean, I will, I will say like releasing a book in 2020 is kind of strange because it's really easy to feel like it doesn't matter right. um, when there are so many really big issues front and center right now. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of people are also retreating into story as, as a way to to feel empathy and to, and to, you know, bond in some way, whether it's, you know, with the characters or with the author. Yeah. And, you know, and with other readers, when you share a, a connection to a book with somebody. Um, yes. I think that, I mean, I think what you just said is so well said, and I want to use that as a bit to talk about the title, Little Threats, because as you said, there's so much violence in our society right now. There's so much, there's so much overt threat, you know, there's, whether it's the, election we're in the middle of, whether it's the Supreme Court stuff that just happened, whether it's for certain bodies in our culture right now. Um, and all those violences are so important and deserve our attention and our work. Um, I think it's also always important to hold space to attend to the, the, the smaller violences that are a part of, of many people's lives. Um, so can you talk about that, that title, Little Threats, and why you chose that title and what the little threats, like what it, how would you describe how those play out in the, in the novel? Uh, okay, so that wasn't the original title. I had something uh-huh. that was 
really long and pretentious <laughs> and more literary and kind of vague. And it was like, a, it was a Jane Eyre reference. And then we started editing the book and my editor said, I don't know about this title, you know, what do you think about just doing some brainstorming? And so we, we came up with six or eight titles and some of them were like nineties theme songs, like um, songs that are referenced in the book um, that I thought maybe fit. And some of them were kind of abstract and we were just trying to find it. And then suddenly little threats just kind of like appeared on my whiteboard and uh, and it was it just felt right. Um, I think because you know, threat is something that we perceive of as being big, being really big, and yet to pair it with that word little, you know. And I liked the idea because they really are girls in the book. They're young. They're children, right? I mean, they're teenagers, but they're children still. And so I liked that kind of pairing, um, you know, because because it's it's a story about young people. And I think we also have this tendency to minimize any kind of threat, especially when it's in a partnership or a domestic situation, like a family and a family's violence and that kind of thing. Um, so for me, it just, it just felt right. Can you talk a little bit about what, um, without spoiling anything, what the little threats in the novel are for you? Like what are the, what are those, what counts as a little threat in this book? So the, uh, the phrase is used by Kennedy. Um, she says to the, to the boyfriend when he comes back, I don't think we're giving too much away here, but she says like, it was always little threats with you. If you're going to make a threat, make it a big one. And she kind of confronts mm -hmm. him. Um, but I also feel like it's, there's a lot of stuff in the novel. There are these, um, there's this sort of ephemera of the time and also of girlhood, um, things like the girl's jewelry. Like one of the characters, the character who dies wears a yin yang necklace and the necklace comes back, right? So these little bangles right. and things like photographs and they're printed photographs, unlike today. Like none of my photographs that I have are printed. They're all on my social media. Yeah. Um, right. And I have things like Polaroids, you know, and those are getting, you know, there's Polaroids and there's little notes that you write when you're in high school, you know, that you pass to your friend and that kind of thing. So it seems to me like there's all this kind of little ephemera and a lot of those things wind up being um, kind of like reveals of what might have happened. How do you write, how do you write a character, you know, as, as you're saying now, memory and imperfect memory is such an important part of this book, characters who can't quite remember what happened. How do you write a character who is having those gaps in memory where you as the writer want to know what actually happened? Do you need to know what actually happened? Do you, are you writing purely from the experience of that? memory fogginess or or elision or something can you yeah uh, how do you how do you write that so yeah so the characters uh, because they're young and they're experimenting with lots of drugs and that's partly where the gaps come from in the memory um and i certainly had that experience uh -huh. um but writing it I, I think it was one of the reasons that i wanted to tell the story from multiple povs and so that's why we have kennedy's version and she was you know, on acid in the woods the night that her friend died. And then we have Carter's version. She was not. Um, and, you know, so, but she also wasn't there. So she doesn't have the same memory that Kennedy has. And um, then we have the point of view of Everett, who's the, the brother, the younger brother of the teenage girl who died. And then we have the older boyfriend, Burke. And so basically, <clears throat> and Jerry, the father, and so basically by, by having all of those characters' viewpoints, I felt like I was able to um, 
make sure if it were just Kennedy's, I feel like it would be a little harder to follow. It'd be a little more jagged and there'd be bigger gaps. And so by having the other characters, you know, things gradually can fill in as they discuss what happened years ago. How many, so, and did you, how much, how much planning do you do when you're writing that way? Do you, have you mapped out the whole sort of factual narrative of what happened? Or are you following the voices of the characters? Um, I tend to write very instinctually. So I'm following the voices of the characters. Um, but then that comes back in when I do rewrites and edits. And so actually one of the really brilliant things that my editor, Daniel Dietrich brought to this book is she made a list of the physical, what she called clues or evidence of the case. Uh -huh. And she sent that to me and said, here's all your evidence and your clues that I can see. Now, where do you have it? And can you space it out throughout the book? And can you look at who's presenting it? And uh -huh. that was really wonderful. I mean, I have, so I have this um, crime show, like this television crime show host, Dean Nash, who's coming in to try to recreate the crime and do a show about it. And I had given her the ability to spread all these details out. And my editor came in and said, I like her bringing some of it, but I also want to see some of it come from each of the other characters, some of it from Everett, some of it from Carter, some of it from Kennedy. And so that was really a wonderful gift that she gave me. And so even though on first draft, I'm finding who the characters are and what their story is, then on subsequent drafts, I'm trying to make sure that it will all hang together in terms of right. the plot. Right. Bless editors and bless <laughs> the way they read. Um, I want to ask you too a little bit about uh, Joyland Magazine and your work in other genres. I mean, I know The Blondes was turned into a podcast. I don't know if you wrote that or whether that was sort of handed off to somebody else, but can you talk about how, about the other mediums that you work in, other media, other media outlets, your work as an editor and um, how that feeds you and how that serves your, your work as a writer? Oh, wow. Yes. Um... Yes, I, I've done a lot of editing over the years. Um, it's, you know, one way to help pay the bills. <laughs> uh, Joyland is a literary magazine. I'm, I'm no longer involved with it. The new publisher is Michelle and King, but I started it uh, with my partner, Brian Joseph Davis. And um, it's short stories from across Canada, the US, and also international, some translation. Cool. And uh, it's all short fiction. But so I did edit that for years and being able to read widely and different styles and from all over the country. I mean, definitely it has an influence on, on your writing. I mean, because you can see immediately when you open up someone else's story, what works and what doesn't and what grabs you quickly. Um, so I learned a lot as a writer from doing that as well. Um, I also edit freelance. I do books for a living and <laughs> I learn from those too. Yeah. Um, with The Blondes, uh, so Brian and I uh, co-wrote The Blondes podcast and then produced it. And uh, we were able to get uh, Madeline Zima to star in it and Helen Hong and Rob Belushi, who are all amazing people out there in LA near you. Yeah, my friends um, and neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and we basically, um, Brian has a, has a background in audio. Um, so I, I did co-writing and producing on it, but um, he put the whole thing together. And then we put that out on Spotify and Apple podcasts and it got picked up in France and translated. Cool. So it's in French now and it's supposed to be in Spanish soon, which is really cool. And what's That's really so funny cool. is when you hear these performances in a different language, it's, it's so new and different, but at the same time, I can, I can feel the, uh, the original material. That's so cool. That's so, so cool. Um, okay, so for our last question, 
I'm curious, what has been getting you through this when you're when you're stressed or overwhelmed in this moment? What have been the things that have been getting you through? Uh, well, one of the things that I do is if I happen to read the news and I become disturbed, uh, I just go for a run. And there's this bridge that got built recently near my apartment, and it takes me from Brooklyn over to Queens and back. And I just go run that and I get all my negative energy out. And it, then I feel like a sane human again. Uh, the outdoors, the outdoors, we get it as much as we can. Um, I do miss Brooklyn, especially this time of year. Uh, well, thank you so much, Emily. It's been a real, real pleasure. Um, Little Threats is out November 10th. Come on in and visit us at the, at the store and pick up your copy. Thank you so much. Thanks, Agnes. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.